morning. Let me just get set up here. <clears throat> well, it's good to be back here at church, uh, but I have to be honest, I miss Parkside Ranch. <laughs> it was good to be in the country. It was good to be together, worshiping the Lord together. I was truly blessed by uh, a little lower, Josh, maybe. I'm hearing myself too. Whoa. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, we just enjoyed the teaching that we received from Joel Capeters. We just enjoyed uh, having dinner together around breakfast, lunch, supper, uh, and just, just the amazing uh, the feedback I'm hearing that people were blessed by it. And I look forward to next year. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I definitely look forward to ne next year. Welcome, Dave and Katie, back from Antarctica. I think they went on a long trip, and they look like now they're defrosted from uh, their... <laughs> You're okay? Yeah, okay, good, good. We enjoyed having Shama on the weekend. She was great. Uh, what a blessing. So today, we're gonna, uh, my message is trusting God in the midst of the storm. And uh, it's, uh, we're in the second last chapter of Acts, which uh, Paul is finally on his way to Rome, but not with, with another uh, major hurdle to, to cross. He and his journeymates will be confronted with one of the fiercest challenges in their ministry travels. They will face a storm of all storms as they sail across the Mediterranean and the Adriatic. We always, Mediterranean always sounds good to us, but not back then. It was kind of stormy. And in it, we will see the incredible power and the faithfulness of God in the midst of that storm. And the story is not just about a physical storm, but it also speaks to us of the storms that we face in our everyday lives. The good news is that in the midst of our storms, we have a Savior who is with us and will never leave us and forsake us. Amen? And so I invite you to open your hearts and your minds today as we uh, look into this powerful passage. I want to do a quick recap of where things are uh, since we last left to a couple of weeks ago. Paul was still in prison in Caesarea, and at this point, he has served two years for a crime he hasn't committed. Uh, basically, they were, uh, there were false charges put on him for uh, defiling the temple by bringing in Gentiles, teaching things that were contrary to the law, and provocation or sedition against the Roman government. So we're trying to find any way to accuse him. And in the meantime, there has been a change of governor. So uh, Festus uh, has replaced Felix. So it's like Jean Charest has been replaced by Legault, okay? And we know that Felix was corrupt, and uh, he knew Paul was innocent, but wanted to make the Jews happy, so he kept him in jail. And every once in a while, he would summon him because he was trying to extort money from him, you know, to see if he would, uh, probably he knew there was a lot of money that was given to him to bring to the Jews uh, that uh, they had collected. Uh, so Paul retains his integrity and remains in jail waiting upon the Lord. Festus now has inherited this problem, and he's not sure what to do with Paul. He finds himself in the same predicament of wanting to appease the Jews for political gain while knowing that Paul is innocent and is also a Roman citizen. So the Jews try an old trick with the new governor, asking Paul to have a hearing in Jerusalem. So remember, they were in, they're in Caesarea. They're about uh, uh, 70 kilometers away. And their idea was, look, we got nothing against them. They're not going to do anything. Let's ask for a hearing, but what we're going to do is we're going to kill them. Okay, this is the only way to get them. And so uh, Paul 
is thinking about all this. He's been in jail for two years, and he says, you know what? I'm going to appeal to Caesar for a verdict, so they're going to send me to Rome. It's like, I want a Supreme Court hearing, okay? So, uh, so that this way, you know, he, he would be protected, which was a good strategic decision on his part. So Festus agrees and leaves him in jail until he can arrange for him to go to Rome. In the meantime, in chapter 26, okay, now that was the last chapter, King Agrippa shows up. Now, Agrippa is a client king. He also happens to be a Jew and a, a descendant of Herod the Great. So it's like the royals and the prime minister of England, right? He's got some influence, but he's not really the governor. He just happens to be there visiting. So Festus discusses Paul's case with Agrippa, and he explains the situation that the Jews in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, they're desperate to see him executed, and he has done nothing deserving of death. So much so, he doesn't even know what to write to Caesar, like to send him there. He has, I don't know what to say. So he, he says, he explains the situation to Agrippa. Now Agrippa, as a Jew, is curious and wants to hear Paul's story. So as Paul is called to testify before him, he uses the, the opportunity to recount his history and subsequent con conversion uh, on the road to Damascus. And by the way, this is the third time that Paul gives his Damascus road conversion story in the book of Acts. And this is a sidebar. I just want to say that when we want to evangelize somebody uh, into what God has done for us, tell our story. Okay, This is a strategy Paul uses. He just tells his story. And so he goes on to explain to Agrippa that the gospel message, message should be not so much a surprise to the Jews since it fulfills the promises that were made through Moses and the prophets and the prophets that Christ must die, must suffer, and that being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. In this particular version of the testimony in front of Agrippa, in contrast to the other two times he says his story, he includes a new detail uh, that is probably meant to have a specific impact on Agrippa and on Festus. It is where he describes where God said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds this, and it's the only place you find it in the New Testament and in the book of Acts. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? And this is an agricultural metaphor uh, that he uses to make a point. Now, when uh, farmers would try to guide their oxen to, in a direction, they'd have a pointy stick. And so they would guide them. And then the, the oxen would kick against it. But if he could kick against it, it would hurt even more. So what, what he's trying to communicate there is, why are you resisting the providence of God? Why are you resisting the truth of God? Which was what was going in Paul's mind when he first, uh, before he uh, accepted the Lord. And so this, this he feels perhaps is, is important to share with Festus and Agrippa. So, Paul goes on to appeal to Agrippa to believe, and Agrippa does not respond to the gospel in that opportunity, and thinks Paul's great learning has betrayed him to think that he would convert into a Christian so quickly, but at least he's thinking about it. What's impressive about Paul is that even in these, although he's in these circumstances, and a lot of his life is at stake, he uses his defense as an opportunity to evangelize, and that shows us the type of focus 
and commitment and passion Paul had for the gospel. So he ends up, uh, it ends up that they arranged to have Paul sent to Rome. And Agrippa kind of says, well, too bad. If you had appealed to me, probably I would have let you go. Uh, I don't know if that's a taunt or maybe it's just a way of the devil trying to discourage Paul. So that's where we're at today. It leads us to the passage which covers the whole trip in detail about a stormy voyage, the stormy voyage and the shipwreck. Many readers of Acts 27 have commented on the precision, the accuracy, and the vividness of this narrative. It is said that there is no detail about the working of an ancient ship in all of classical literature as is written here. Okay, so I'm going to read the, the, the passage because it is a classic, right? So we want to hear it. Question, how many shipwrecks did Paul endure? Let's, uh, let's do something we did on the weekend. How many people think it's three? Raise your hand. How many people think it's four? Raise your hand. Okay, so no, not many hands. I got some back there. Good guys, that's it. It's four, right? And uh, actually, before I went into this text, I always thought in my mind it was three. And the reason is, is because Paul says that in uh, 2 Corinthians 11.23. He says, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I was at sea. But actually, this is the fourth time that he will be shipwrecked, and he spends 14 nights at sea. Okay, so that's an interesting uh, caveat. It is also the fourth time we see Luke use we statements to indicate that he was present and an eyewitness on this impending voyage. Okay, so that's, that's also an interesting fact. So we'll now read the passage uh, from uh, Acts 27, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to take a swig of water because it's a long chapter. But I'll try to make it interesting for you. <clears throat> and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan court named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adrumidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So Paul had two of his buddies with him. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, whenever you see under the lee, it means close to the land to protect against the winds, okay? So you will see that a few times. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they hitch onto a connecting ship there to Rome. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go far farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. So this fast refers to the Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur. So it's around either late September or early October. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. 
But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Crete facing both southwest and the northwest, and spend the winter there. Now on the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose. They weighed anchor, so they lift their anchor off, and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Coda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, uh, boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violent, violently storm-tossed, they began to, the next day to jettison the cargo, to lighten the ship. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, throwing the ship's tackle overboard is a desperate maneuver. They're throwing everything on the ship because they want to lighten it as much as possible. It's like an airplane emptying all the fuel so they're going to make a crash landing. They're, they're just putting all the chances on their side. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since he had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. In other words, I told you so. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, the, of, of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God and that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had, had come, which was 11 more days since he received this message, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day, and you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing, because if they would have eaten, they might have gotten sick. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat, so not everything is gone, even the food. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosing the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, so rocks just below the surface of the water, close to the, the beach, 
they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck the front of the ship and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, again, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. What a story. What a story. And really to appreciate what Paul endured in his ministry, aside everything else that he had endured, th this last trip was, uh, was something else that he incurred and he survived. So the title of my message, as Natalie pointed out, is Trusting God in the Midst of the Storm. And my outline for you today uh, will be as such. Uh, three points I want to make. We can trust God to show up in the midst of the storm. Uh, we can trust God to bring people into our lives to get through the storm. And finally, we can trust God to patiently and lovingly guide us past the storm. And then what's interesting, at about uh, a few 15 minutes, we're going to have a virtual interview with Emmanuel Ish, who is in the Mount Jordan. And he will join us. He's the multi-country director for World Vision in the Middle East. And uh, we'll talk about it because any practical thing I could say is going to be that more effective coming from somebody who's lived such a situation as we just, we just talked about. So the first point I want to make is that we could trust God to show up in the midst of the storm. So we know storms will come, and it's just a question of when, where, and what type of storm we will face. This is part of the human condition. We will all experience loss, sickness, financial struggles, workplace challenges, and broken relationships. Just because we are Christians, we are not immune to this. Sometimes it's our own fault, sometimes it's somebody else's doing, and somebody's, sometimes it's just nobody's fault. But the Bible is very clear about warning us about that, that we will suffer we will have consequences, but God is faithful through those circumstances. Jesus said himself that you will have troubles in this world, but take heart, I have, come, I have overcome the world in John 16, 33. It says it another way in Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, verse 19. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Amen? The Bible also records stories of people who through the centuries were righteous yet had to overcome many heart-wrenching situations. There are many examples. I'll just point out a few here. Think of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he was put in jail for being honorable uh, in front of Potiphar's wife. David, he was pursued by uh, Saul uh, out of jealousy and he had to hide away for many, many years. Uh, even his son uh, was, uh, was wanting to kill him. And so he endured extreme hardships. Daniel lived in exile, uh, was forced to conform to the Babylonians. He was thrown into the den of lions just for praying to his God. And then there was Jeremiah, who was beaten and abused, lonely and abandoned, and deep always in, you know, uh, in deep despair and anguish. Uh, Paul was in constant persecution and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And despite all the challenges these heroes of the faith endured, God was in the midst of their dire circumstances. 
So you remember Joseph, he used to have, he had divine dreams and, uh, and experienced divine favor and protection. He was, he became second in line to the Pharaoh. David had many victories in battle. Uh, God was, he, he, uh, he had uh, experienced God's presence and his guidance and was even restored when, when he had failed. Daniel also received divine protection and had many dreams and visions from God. And Jeremiah himself, was, who was uh, often uh, depressed and in despair, received words of comfort and protection from God uh, to the point where God said, I will put a bronze wall against your adversaries. And then there's Paul, his incredible escapes, the Holy Spirit guiding him in all the, his years of ministry that we saw in the book of Acts, and even angels speaking to him, as was mentioned in that text. It said that this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. All these stories are written for our encouragement, brothers and sisters. The Bible is not only a revelation of biblical truths, but it records the account of people, people who lived with struggles much the same way we struggle. And, and those stories are there to inspire us to know that God thinks of us in the same way. He knows our circumstances and he is working in the, in the background to weather the storm that we find ourselves in, okay? We assume these stories and promises and know that he will not abandon us either in our moments of crisis because we live in the next chapters of Acts. This is the, we, we, we are very much like the characters in the Bible and we, have, uh, we will receive the same kind of protection and faithfulness from God. But just because we have faith that God is working for us, it doesn't mean we won't experience moments of doubt and of fear. It's normal, and once again, Scripture talks about this. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, verses 9, Paul writes about a time in Asia where he was burdened ex excessively, beyond his strength, and despaired even of life itself. He felt overwhelmed by the hardships and the challenges that he faced. In 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about being hard-pressed on every side and perplexed, feeling persecuted and struck down. But despite these moments of despair, Paul's, Paul's writings also demonstrate his unwavering faith and trust in God. He often finds solace and hope in God's strength and promises, reminding himself and others to persevere through challenges and that you can trust God to show up in the midst of the storm. Having experienced my own share of stormy situations, I have to say that it's built my confidence knowing that God will somehow uh, will, will show up and somehow do the heavy lifting or teach me something I can learn from the situation. As a perfect loving father does, he is there to guide, protect, and correct us when we need it. It is helpful to remember those significant moments when God is present and leading us through a tough situation. By recalling past deliveries, it will help reduce our fear the next time a storm comes. In addition to God himself showing up in the midst of our struggles, he uses other people to come to our aid, which leads to my second point. 
we can trust God to bring people into our lives to help us through the storms. Paul had many people who helped him when he was discouraged and in desperate need. People like Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Luke, Aquila, and Priscilla. In this last section of Acts alone, which some scholars refer to as Luke's journey motif, in that the last seven or eight chapters are just a journey from Jerusalem to Rome, we see many instances of divine encounters that greatly helped Paul. Here are some examples of the key people that played a role in securing Paul's safety. So first is Paul's nephew. You remember he overheard the conversation of the uh, 40 Jews who were planning to ambush and kill Paul. And uh, he goes and tells the tribune about it. And by doing that, uh, he spares Paul's life because the, uh, the tribune named Claudius Lysias decides to protect him. And he actually supplies 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to transport Paul to Caesarea. Imagine that even the President of the United States would get that kind of treatment. And then there's Felix and Festus. Now, although they meant for bad, God used it for good because they held him incarcerated until a, a new person and a new plan would be in place for Paul, where Paul could appeal and, and be sent to Caesar. And then there's Julius the centurion. So you know, when Paul gets on the boat, as I read that text, he treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends and to be cared for. Uh, and also, he saved Paul when the soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners. And then there's Luke and Aristarchus that uh, were allowed to travel with him and care for him. Knowing Luke was a doctor, uh, that certainly would have been a, a benefit to him. I don't know much about our Aristarchus. We all, all we know is that he's a Macedonian, so he was Greek. So I don't know what he did, but he might have been helpful to him. So God has a way of orchestrating encounters and connections with specific individuals who can provide support, encouragement, or practical help when we need it. These encounters may seem coincidental, but they are often divinely arranged. What's interesting is some of these people happen to be random individuals who God uses to Paul's benefit. We can all, all experience this from time to time. I know I have. People who come into our lives and give us comfort, guidance, or the protection we need right at the right moment. What's also not to be neglected is, is the support from Paul's spiritual family. No doubt Paul was supported by the prayer and intercession from fellow believers everywhere. Think of all those who received him gladly uh, when he first arrived in Jerusalem. And he, they heard the reports of how the gospel was being received by the Jews and the Gentiles all over the world. Knowing that he was being falsely accused and put into the barracks shortly after, you can be sure that they were feverishly praying for him, uh, and, uh, as were those in other areas who would have known and been concerned for him. He often mentioned the prayers, love, and assistance he received in his letters. The presence of a supportive Christian community provided him with strength and encouragement in times of difficulty. In my own experience, I have appreciated the different layers of relationships that I've developed over the years. Some now live out of province. Most are in Montreal and have been a part of this church. And there is, more, uh, there is also a more intimate group who I can be more vulnerable with. 
I am very thankful for them all and realize that they are a valuable and precious gift of God. It is why I feel it's so vital to cultivate healthy relationships within the church, and especially in that small, intimate circle where you can share and pray for your deepest burdens. We know that, Paul was, we know that this was important to Paul, and it was also important to Jesus, right, who prayed with a small group of, of disciples. And so if it was important to them, shouldn't it be important to us? Amen? Our culture would have us believe that we can get along well on our own, but that's not a biblical perspective. It's not only important to commit to a church family, but I would go as far as to say it's necessary for anyone who wants to live a victorious Christian life. Making a commitment to worship God corporately, engage in service, and to participate in small group ministry or other activities will help create more intimate bonds with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Bonds that will help sustain us with practical, emotional, spiritual, and prayer support when we face the storms of life. There are at least 38 one another's in the Bible, and I will list them quickly here. Uh, 38, and there's 10 samples. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. We could list them. Yeah, that's right. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Build up one another. And then finally, greet one another with a holy kiss. There's no doubt, brothers and sisters, that uh, our help, much help, is received from being in fellowship with one another. It was so refreshing to have spent time together this past week and to strengthen our bonds as a church. And yes, even doing crazy things like uh, getting a shave. And I thank uh, uh, Philip and Rosie for being good sports on their first time at a retreat, but enjoying those times of fellowship and getting to know one another more intimately uh, is a sure way of, uh, of getting closer. And uh, it helps us fight discouragement and disillusionment when the storms come. And lastly, we can trust God to patiently and lovingly guide us past the storm. Perhaps you find yourself this morning in a situation that is out of your control, and you are living under a cloud hanging over your heads for days, months, years, and perhaps even decades. It can really be debilitating. It could ruin your health, your family, and challenge your faith. But thanks be to God, he never gives up on you and on me, and is trustworthy to make a way for us past the storm. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. When we think our faith is dry and our hope is waning, it is not time to quit, brothers and sisters. Think of it this way. This is where the roots have an opportunity to grow deep. You know that trees without deep roots are more easily knocked over when a storm comes. Trees can also fail when periods of drought come. The ones that endure are the ones whose roots grow deeper into the ground in search of nutrients. In the long run, these trees are better equipped to withstand storms and droughts, and so it is with us. I like this verse that speaks of this. It's in Jeremiah. It says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. If you continue to trust in the Lord, he will get you past the storm. In the process, he will strengthen your faith for the challenges that will lie ahead. 
God will patiently and lovingly work with you to get there. So at this juncture, I'm going to invite my friend into the, our service. Uh, I'd like to introduce you Emmanuel Ish. Emmanuel uh, is currently the regional director for the Middle East based in Jordan, overseeing World Vision response in countries like Jordan, Turkey, and Syria. And prior to this, he was a country director for Sudan for three years until the civil war broke out in April 2023. A little about our connection and uh, connection with Tanya. Uh, Emmanuel and I worked together when I was with World Vision. He was my boss's boss's boss <laughs> of Canadian and international programs. And a connection to Tanya, well, his mom and uh, Tanya's mom are friends. They are both from the Greek diaspora living here and uh, have been together in fellowship in the Greek church. So uh, welcome, Emmanuel. Thank you for joining us. Can you hear me? In uh, difficult places, in conflict-prone places. Uh, but what happened on April 15th uh, last year uh, was somewhat unexpected, where two rival army factions decided to uh, start a conflict uh, in the middle of the capital, Khartoum, where we were. Uh, so in the matter of hours, as we were, my wife and I were out uh, just on some routine errands on a Saturday, uh, we started hearing gunshots. Uh, we were with some friends um, and uh, end up um, um, not being able to go back to our house that was on the other side of town. Uh, but fortunately, our friends and colleagues had uh, their apartment nearby. And what we thought would be just a few hours uh, to let the fighting subside uh, became um, a larger conflict. And we were stuck, so to speak, for almost a week in our friends and colleagues' apartment while the war was unraveling uh, outside and uh, around us. Um, and uh, this uh, started a conflict uh, that has continued uh, to this day and has affected millions uh, of people. A storm, how did your role play a, a, a role in the, your faith play a role in navigating through, through that very tense situation? Yeah, when we first started uh, spending time in the, or being in the apartment, we, we thought that we would be out in a matter of hours, but uh, that was not the case or the reality. But somehow we felt uh, at peace. Um, we, we felt relatively safe uh, and uh, we, we felt at peace. Uh, we, we prayed, but also uh, even with limited communications, we found out that family, friends, colleagues around the world were praying not just for us, not just for our colleagues, but also for the country of Sudan. Uh, and I think that prayer chain that was happening globally really helped us, sustained us, um, and gave us the confidence that somehow we would get out of this apartment and go to a safer part uh, where we uh, could be. Um, and so the, the faith and the prayers and how even God intervened to get us out uh, really showed that he was there and he was ahead of us. Um, 
um, what happened from the apartment is after a few days, our organization was not able to rescue us, but through an embassy, uh, one of our colleagues was able to get rescued, but they also said, well, your colleagues can come with us. So without going into many details, we were after six days able to uh, uh, go to safety at least for a couple of days before we were evacuated from uh, the country. So our, the, our faith sustained us, but certainly the prayers from around the world and the confidence that somehow God would get us out of this situation. Well, to the Malaysian embassy for that, uh, getting you there, which uh, you should Correct, yes. Uh, when we got word of this through your mom, we were, we were deeply touched, and, and immediately we started praying for your situation. And I'm sure a lot of, peop a lot of people uh, responded to her appeal uh, as she, well, she was spreading the news. Um, so we thought uh, this must have been difficult for you, not only for the protection of, of your family, but what, you're, what you were thinking, your concern for your extended family around the world. How did you deal with that? To be honest, we try to keep busy. So again, there was fighting going on outside. We were on the fifth floor of an apartment. We could see uh, the soldiers, the big guns, the fighting, smoke coming out from the airport, which was not too far uh, from us. Um, and we also heard through social media that the soldiers were going from house to house. And we thought at some point they would come our way um, as well. But uh, I, again, we, we, we had the hope and the confidence that God would uh, get us out of there. Um, and um, so when it comes to our families, we were running short on our cell phone batteries. So just to be practical here, so we limited our communications. Our families knew we were safe and we told them, don't expect us to be calling you uh, regularly. Uh, but not only were we concerned about, you know, our families and our, but also about our colleagues, because there are a number of us with World Vision uh, who uh, were in different places that became unsafe. So my concern was not just for myself and my wife, but also for our international colleagues, our local colleagues, but also the whole country uh, of Sudan. So we kept busy in a sense, but also our our own prayers extended. Uh, beyond ourselves as well, uh, for our colleagues and uh, for uh, the country. And we were happy to get brief messages to our families around the world to say, we're okay for now. If you don't hear from us for a couple, three days, don't worry, we'll get back to you when we can. It was like a frantic busyness. <laughs> yes. What words of wisdom might you offer to those who are currently navigating through a, a difficult storm of their own and how should they be prepared for one that could be as difficult as yours was? Well, I think as you said in your own sermon, we need to know and remember that in life we will go through storms. They may, I mean, whatever the storm may be, uh, we, but we need them to have the faith um, and that God will be there. And the experience we went through in Sudan, very much we saw God ahead of us if I had the time to give you examples in terms of the food, the people we stayed with had just come back from uh, the UK that same morning, the conflict erupted. 
they had extra food with them. Uh, the way we got um, rescued from the apartment, the fact that we had to be on a long convoy that took us uh, to the Red Sea part of uh, Sudan, no planes could fly in because of insurance. There was a war going on, but somehow we end up on a ferry boat uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia and we made a crossing across. Uh, so all these things that were unplanned, so we, we had a plan A, the plan A didn't work, but then God came up with a plan B. So we know that when we go through storms in life, God may have a way out, even if that way out is not always clear, if it's not always in our own timing. Uh, confidence that yeah, people will pray. You mentioned earlier the importance of connecting in a church setting, in a, in, in a group setting. So when we go through storms, then we know that friends, colleagues uh, can pray for us. So these were all important things that sustained us during this time, you know, faith, prayer, confidence that God will intervene somehow. And all these were really important reminders for us. That's great. So, uh, Emmanuel, how can we pray for you and your family now as you serve in this very tense Middle East climate uh, before, before we end the interview? What, what situation would you like us to pray for? Uh, as was reminded earlier uh, by yeah by one of the congregants, there are conflicts everywhere or many places around the world, and we cannot honestly remember all of them. But even a quick short prayer, God knows, you know, God knows what's going on. There's millions of people who are affected by conflicts. Uh, we're we're seventy kilometers from uh, the border with Israel and Palestine, where we are right now, Sudan continues to be affected by a conflict. I think for us to pick one or two or three countries that are in conflict, pray for those countries uh, every day, every two days, whatever the case is, God will hear, God will listen. Pray for organizations, not just World Vision, uh, organizations that are working in these uh, tough situations for our staff. I mean, now we have staff who go into Turkey and to Syria, I mean, and at times it is risky. So pray for staff, pray for volunteers who are trying to reach out uh, to people. God will listen and God will honor those prayers. I, I, that's what I take out of this, Emmanuel, and the conversation we had is how uh, important a role prayer played. And uh, I, I thank you for, for sharing that. And um, it just, uh, it's just wonderful, uh, wonderful to have heard your, your testimony this morning. Thank you for, for blessing us. Thank you for having me. When you come and visit your mom, uh, we'd love to uh, see you in person. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me this morning. That was nice. We that. Time. You know, I, it's this morning as we were in the breaking of bread. Uh, Lydia was uh, was crying, and uh, we we tried to ask her what was what was uh, going on. And that's okay, Lydia. This is God working for you. You shared how God worked for you last week. She came here at nine o'clock last week, and we were closed, and she was dropped off by Transport Adapté, and so stranded in snow she she didn't know what to do she she walked and she was fretting and then 
she walked over and it happened that the woman at the funeral home saw her and invited her in. And she was just thanking God that God provided her somebody while she was in that situation. And this is what we see over and over again. God will never abandon us. I am confident of that. In any situation, God is always with us and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us in any of our circumstances, even till, till we are confronted with the worst of our circumstances. I want to give some closing thoughts, just as an uh, added, um, to, to add to the message, some, some other encouragements. But uh, when we are in the thick of the storm, one thing I could advise is to confess your helpless feeling. Uh, just cry out to God. Uh, God, you know, uh, crying out to God, uh, it, will, uh, it will ignite your faith. And, uh, and there's something about that that I, I personally found helpful. People around you might think you're crazy, but do it anyway. <laughs> Cry out to God, okay? Confess your helpless feeling. The second thing is affirm your faith. Think of Paul's attitude. Uh, remember when, he's, when he was speaking to the men on the boat, he said, this very night there stood before me an angel of, the, of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. Okay, he knew who he belonged to. And we all belong to God. If we profess our faith in Christ, we belong to him. And we need to affirm that. The third thing is be alert to God's, to God's encouragement. Uh, just listening to the testimony of Emmanuel uh, and your own lives, be alert to what God is doing. Sometimes we're so focused on the storm that we forget the things that he's sending our way. And, and look at the things that are happening around us and, and be alert to that because that is God's encouragement. As Emmanuel said, God goes before you. And lastly, what can I learn from this that will serve me later? God loves us perfectly. And sometimes the way he shows his love is by allowing us to go to these storms so we can learn something from them. And so this way our roots are going to grow deeper and our faith is going to grow stronger. So these four things uh, I want to leave with you um, this morning. And uh, as we part, we'll, we'll pray for Emmanuel, we'll pray for a situation in the Middle East, and we'll pray for our, our resilience and boldness as we, uh, we strive to live out our faith. And Father God, we're just thankful this morning for the time we had to, to just dig into your word. Thank you for the story. Thank you for having put Luke on that boat so he can... Uh, write down uh, a testimony that would serve us this morning that uh, we should never uh, doubt whether or not you will show up as clearly you have time and time again. Thank you for Emmanuel, Lord. Thank you for the work that he does in the Middle East. Thank you for all those in, uh, who are working tirelessly in the nonprofit sector. Lord, would you protect them? Would you bless them in the midst of their work? And uh, Father, we just uh, pray for that situation now that's in the Middle East, in Syria, in Jordan, in Turkey, in Sudan, in, in all parts of the world where there is conflict. Uh, we just pray that you could raise up uh, those that are there that could be a light in those communities and that the, uh, the casualties would be minimized and that you will make uh, something good out of the ashes that are there now. Father, we just pray for one another, that we would love one another, care for one another, support one another, and uh, to, so that we can uh, 
we can enjoy uh, the, the comfort that you bring us through your people, and uh, especially during these turbulent times, Father. So we, uh, we just uh, want to bless you as well this morning. 